0: Amen, amen. It's so good to share God's Word this morning. Before we get started, let us pray and ask the Lord's blessing over our time and His Word. Lord, we are so thankful that all of us in Christ can say that we are free. We are free. We are free. We are free from the penalty of sin. We are free from the power of sin. And one day, one glorious day, we will be free from the very presence of sin. Lord, as we turn to Your Word this morning, Lord, let us be reminded that it's not in the repetition of God's word that gives us great struggle. Lord, it is faithfulness to the truth of your word that gives us the great struggle. And so, Lord, we ask that you, through your spirit, push us to the side for just a moment. Let us hear the word of truth, God's spoken word, revealed to us through his spirit, alive and well today. Lord, let it bring us tremendous peace, assurance, freedom, joy, power. Lord, we thank you for the finished work of the cross. Lord, thank you for the book of Galatians and what it not only meant to the early church, but what it means to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you would, open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3. We're going to be in verses 10 through 14 this morning. If you're joining with us on campus and you do not have a copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to look underneath the seat that you're sitting in or underneath the seat in front of you. There should be a blue Bible. I would encourage you to open that Bible to page 1076. 1076. In fact, if you do not have a copy of God's Word, we would encourage you to take that Bible home with you uh, as a gift from us to you because we believe God's Word is so central in understanding who He is and understanding who we are and understanding our need for Him in Christ. Uh, just to set a little bit of context this morning uh, as we unpack verses 10 through 14, uh, Paul is writing to the churches in Galatia. And if we remember, it was Paul and Barnabas that were sent out on that first missionary journey uh, from Syria of Antioch, or Antioch of Syria. And they went to the Roman Empire, uh, to the province of Galatia. And there, God's word was spoken. Uh, the gospel was given out. Uh, the gospel was received uh, in faith by many. And churches were planted, lives were changed, and things were awesome, right? But shortly after Paul and Barnabas left those particular churches, uh, false teachers began to uh, go in. And now it's important for us to realize that uh, more than likely this this book, the book of Galatians, would have been Paul's very first writing. So we're looking at around uh, 48 AD, somewhere around there. And it's important because uh, this was central to the life of the church. The gospel of grace is so central to the body of Christ. And so uh, as we've been studying it, today is actually our 10th message in this book. When Paul's writing was given to the churches in Galatia, they they would have sat down one time and read through the whole thing, right? And so some of you may be thinking, I wish we would have done that nine weeks ago, right? Uh, But the point is that they probably had greater understanding on certain things than we do. And so culturally, we have to understand what is happening. How is it tied back to the Old Testament? And that's where we've really been over the past several weeks is really looking at the Old Testament and how... how everything points to the finished work of Christ. In other words, it's not the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. No, there is one God with a redemptive story to humanity. And so this is important. And so uh, what we find, where we've been over these past several weeks, is really Paul is addressing the concern that the that the false teachers were bringing into the church. This idea that uh, in order to be right with God, and and not just be right with God, but in order to remain right with God, it had to be Jesus plus something else, and spe- specifically Jesus plus works. And the specific works, primarily, were that of circumcision and that of uh, adhering to the law that was given to Moses. And so what Paul has been doing, Paul has been uh, encouraging the church, just like he's encouraging us today, is, is is we, there will be temptation to twist and to turn away from the gospel, right? All of us face it all the time. In fact, I will say we face it more than we even recognize. And what Paul is encouraging the church to do and reminding the church to do is stay faithful to the gospel. Stay, that is the core uh, doctrine of the church, that you stay faithful to the word of God displayed uh, in Christ, finished at the cross, given to us through the Holy Spirit, you stay central. Of all the things, that is the main thing of the church, to uphold the very word of God because it is what brings us life. And so Paul has been reminding them of this idea that justification, in order to be right with God and remain right with God, isn't Jesus plus works, it's Jesus plus nothing else. And he has shown them through his very own testimony that this is true. In fact, it was Paul himself in Acts 9 that was on the road to Damascus to persecute the very church, the body of Christ, and yet there God in his grace revealed Jesus Christ to him, and there uh, Paul was saved, and his life was forever changed. And he says, in fact, Galatians, Christians in Galatians, this is your very testimony as well. Look at your life. That's what Galatians 3, verses 1 through 5 is all about. That is your testimony. And then he does something remarkable in verses 6 through 9 in chapter 3. He, He goes back into the Old Testament, begins to dig, Because again, the the false teachers, the Judaizers, were saying that again, you had to be circumcised and you had to adhere to the law of Moses. And so Paul says, okay, let's go back. Let's go back to the Old Testament. And so last week we looked uh, really at Abraham's life and 430 years before the law came. Uh, In fact, in Genesis 17, when Abraham was finally circumcised, uh, we have to realize that the circumcision isn't what made him right with God. We know what made him right with God according to Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 is the fact that he put his faith in the Lord. And the sign of God's covenant to him and everyone who would come after him who believed in the Lord, pointing to the Messiah, right? The sign was the, was the circumcision. That was the sign. Not, not the act of the covenant, but the sign of the covenant. Remember, the covenant was all of God's work. And so now we're pushing forward and redemptive history. Now, we're going to fast forward roughly 430 years, and we're going to really focus on the law uh, specifically this week and next week. Uh, next week, we'll address the question of why the law. This week, we're going to address how the law itself isn't what justifies us. And, and we're going to fast forward 430 years, and really, we're going to look at uh, Moses and other people's lives in the Old Testament and how they were right with God. And so, based on that, uh, we're going to look at Galatians 3, verse 10 through 14. And so, understand the logic here. The Judaizers would say, yes, yes, it, 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 it is Jesus, but it has to be something else because God did give a covenant to Abraham. Abraham was circumcised, but 433, 430 years later, what else did he give? He gave the law to Moses. And so that's the works part. That's why we, we are promoting a false gospel, that it has to be Jesus plus something else. And, and that is the great question for us today. In other words... Did the giving of the law change the way someone is justified before God, or did it confirm the way someone is justified before God? That is important, because that is a logical thought. Yes, Abraham then, but Moses now. So the question is, did, did, did a new way of being justified by God come into effect when the law of Moses was given, or did it just confirm what God had already said? In other words, do we have a God that changes his mind, changes his, his, his game plan, if you will, or do we have a God who is faithful and consistent and true and pure? That is the ultimate question that we're addressing today. And so we look at verses 10, 10 through 14. The scripture says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So the two words that just jump off at me when we look at this particular passage is that of curse and that of blessing, right? And so it's based on those two words that we're going to ask and answer two very, very important questions. So in other words, you can choose to live a life that will one day lead to curse or lead to blessing. What is the difference? How do we receive the blessings of God? And so the first question that we want to ask in answer to this today is, why are those who rely on the law cursed? Why are those who rely on the law cursed? That's what, he's, that's what Paul is addressing in those first, two, or first three verses, verses 10 through 12. And the reason is this, the law cannot bring life The law itself cannot bring life. Now, it's important for us to understand the law for just a moment. The law can really be broken into three categories. You have ceremonial law, you had civil law, and you had moral law. Right? The moral law would be uh, what we see as the Ten Commandments. right? And it's out of that moral law, those Ten Commandments, that there would have been given ceremonial laws. Those ceremonial laws were uh, ways that people could uh, worship God rightly. And so they had a bunch of ceremonial laws to say, okay, if you're going to worship God rightly, be, be clean and not unclean, then these are the ceremonial laws. And then the civil laws, coming again from the Ten Commandments, were, uh, how, how are you to conduct yourself among one another? And so when a law is broken, how do you deal with that? What are the consequences of that? And so if we think about the moral law, the Ten Commandments, how did Jesus sum up the Ten Commandments? In fact, all the law, how did he sum it up? Love God, love your neighbor, right? And so all of that is wrapped up into those two statements, love God and love your neighbor, love people. So it's important for us to understand this too, the issue is not the law. The law, in fact, is a reflection of who God is. God is holy. God is perfect. This is why Jesus says, I came not to abolish the law, but to do what? To fulfill the law. In other words, the law is good. And this is the issue that Paul is addressing. Paul is addressing the false teacher, false teaching that says, in order uh, to be right before God, you need to fulfill the requirements of the law on your own. He addresses that in verse 10. He says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. So again, the law itself is not bad. But the works of the law, doing it in your own flesh, trying to fulfill the requirements of God, ceremonial law, moral law, civil law, on your own, you're under a curse. He says, For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now that quote at the end, where Paul says, For it is written, He's actually going back to De- Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. So let's set the stage for Deuteronomy 27. Uh, in Deuteronomy 27, God uh, speaks to Moses, and he's pre- he speaks to Moses in a way to prepare God's people when they enter into the promised land. So they're not in the promised land yet. Uh, but, but he goes to Moses with this final instruction that when you cross over the Jordan and you uh, enter into the promised land, uh, this is what you're going to do. And so this is where we go in verses, uh, in verse, uh, Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. And, and what would happen is when they entered into the promised land, the people of God, uh, the 12 tribes would be divided uh, among two mountain ranges, right? So six tribes on one side, six tribes on the other. Uh, on one side, you have uh, Mount Ebal. And then on the other side, you have Mount Gerizim. And so what would happen is, in Deuteronomy 27, is you have these two groups of people, and we're talking thousands of people, right? We're not talking about a small life group, right? We're talking thousands of people on one side and on another side. And what they would do is, they would shout out the curses from God. And so one side would shout out the curses of God, and then the other side, uh, which the scripture doesn't show it here, but it's it's omitted, but it's uh, it's, uh, inferred, that there would be blessings. In other words, that, that if you obeyed God, there would be blessings. If you disobey God, there would be cursing. And what would happen is, as they would shout back and forth, they would say, Amen! 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 So just get the picture here. Cursed are those who dishonor their father and mother. Amen! Cursed are those who pervert justice. Amen! Cursed are those who have sexual relations outside the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. Amen! Cursed are those who murder their neighbor. Amen! So again, obey God, blessings. Disobey God. Cursings, And that's what's happening here. And what's interesting about uh, Mount Jerzim and Mount Ebal is Mount Jerzim, the place of, bless, uh, the place of uh, cursing, is actually a very barren land. Uh, it's mainly made up of uh, like hard bedrock. And so nothing was growing there. But Mount Ebal was different. It was beautiful. It was flourishing with tremendous vegetation. And really, it's a, a, an amazing uh, illustration of how blessings, the blessings of God bring uh, tremendous growth. And yet, the curses that come from God or what? They, they bring about death, destruction. And so at the end of all this, this is where we get verse 26. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of the law of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say what? Amen. So you have all these things, and then at the very end, that you have to confirm these things. You have to, as Paul said, abide in these things. So in other words, the blessing and cursing hinged on what? Your ability to do them. Right? And so think about the picture here. Now, the question isn't, did you have your A-game one day and you're good? No, it's perfection every day, all the time. That's important. In all things, and the Judaizers wanted to pick and choose the things that they felt like needed to be adhered to. But God's word says, no, you adhere to all of it. In fact, the half-brother of Jesus, uh, Jesus uh, James, says it like this in James chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in, in the one point has become guilty of all of it. Now, what was the sin that James was addressing in chapter 2? favoritism. Now think about that for just a minute. If you show favoritism, you have broken all the law. You're guilty of all of it. Now that's pretty weighty to me, because I, I guarantee that we probably show favoritism on a daily basis. And yet, that's what James says. If, you're, if you break one, you're guilty of all of it. In other words, our inability to keep the whole law doesn't bring blessing, but it brings cursing. We stand condemned, and that's what that cursing would uh, illustrate to you, that we stand condemned, we stand guilty before the Lord, because the law is a reflection of who God is, not who we are, right? It's his perfection, it's his holiness, and it's this condemnation that all, who, all of humanity is under. Every single one of us at birth are born under this condemnation. Paul says it like this in Romans three nineteen and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under law, so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since, those, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In other words, all humanity stands condemned, stands guilty before the Lord. Why? Because we all have sinned. The very law itself exposes the sinfulness that we have. It exposes the fact that we cannot and will not completely or continually live up to God's righteous standards. Why? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This means all of our working, right, all of our trying hard amounts to what? It amount, what is the wages of that? He says it in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is what? Death. So all of our working, all of our, our trying to be right with God, all of that equals to what? Death. That that's what we've earned. Again, the law is good. The law comes from God. The issue is we, we have the inability to fulfill it in ourselves. Right? We can't do it perfectly, we can't do it continuously, we can't do it completely. So it's not your good outweighing the bad, right? That's the religions of the day. If you just have enough good, right? It's 100% or nothing, pass or fail. And apart from Christ, we fail, we stand condemned. And we will not and cannot change the circumstance. In other words, we're not perfect. Have you realized that? Now those who live under the law, guess what? They expect perfection from those around us. Do you realize that? When we lose sight of the beauty of God's grace, do you find yourself to being more critical or more forgiving? More critical. Think about your marriage for just a moment. Think about how you relate to your kids. Think about how you relate to people that you just live life with. That when you've lost sight of the gospel of grace, you don't become more forgiving, you become more critical. In fact, you're more critical of them than you are of your own self. The scripture says, the law itself cannot bring life And that leads us to the second thing this morning. No one is justified by the law, but only through faith. And we've seen this before. And this is important for us as Christians. Listen, the the gospel should be preached to yourself every single day. Received, trusted, believed in, lived in. And so we've heard this same truth over and over again. And Paul, again, he is just making sure, he's pouring it on, wave after wave after wave, because this is exactly where the people of God in Galatia and the churches in Galatia were trying to deviate from. This idea that justification comes from somewhere else other than faith in the Lord. And this is why this is important. In other words, the law is incapable of saving us. The law cannot undo what has already been done. Only Jesus Christ can. That's why in Galatians 3.11, the scripture says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Now that's an important phrase, the righteous shall live by faith. In fact, uh, that that phrase where you take uh, faith and righteousness and put it together uh, in the Old Testament, it only occurs twice in the same verse. And that's important. Now, we looked at one of them last week. Uh, We saw this in Genesis 15, uh, verse 6. Remember uh, what it said. And he, speaking of Abraham, believed, that is faith, he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So there's the first time that it shows up. But it shows up again in the Old Testament all the way uh, into the minor prophets in Habakkuk chapter 2. Now set the stage real quick for Habakkuk chapter 2. The book of Habakkuk is about God's judgment over his people. In other words, there's nothing, judgment is here, it's coming, right? And, And Habakkuk is struggling with this, but his greater struggle is the fact that how God is going to enact his judgment on his people. He's going to do it by sending the Babylonians to them. Now the struggle that Habakkuk has is, you're sending people who are far worse than us to judge us for their sin, for our sin, and, and, and so there's this play that's happening here. And, and God speaks to Habakkuk and he reminds him that their, their judgment is coming, right? Because they're not living by faith. They're living by their own pride. And he, so he says in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, he says, Behold, his soul, talking about the B- Babylonians, is, pa- is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So God is reminding Habakkuk that, yes, judgment is coming. Times will be hard. But trust me, put your faith in me, as you put your faith in me, and only when you put your faith in me will you be spared from ultimate judgment. And that's important, because guess what? Life isn't fair. Life hurts. Circumstances are rough. And the same way that we enter into God's family by faith is the same way that we are to live within God's family by faith. And that's what he's encouraging Habakkuk to do. In other words, salvation doesn't come to the prideful. It only comes to those who are humble before the Lord. So again, salvation is connected to faith, not works of the law. And what I love about this is that Habakkuk has this incredible response to the Lord based on God's faithfulness to him. We see this in Habakkuk uh, chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. The scripture says this, Though the fig tree shall not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, The produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. It's a pretty bleak picture, right? Remember, this is the judgment that is coming. What does he say in verse 18? Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. And so that's important. So it's not just receive Christ in faith one time, but again, every day you live By faith, And that's the picture that we see through Habakkuk. This idea of trusting in the Lord. And in a similar way, Paul uses this to talk about salvation. Salvation doesn't come to the prideful who say, I can do it on my own. Salvation comes to those who are humble and say, I know I can't do it on my own. Now it takes uh, sometimes a long way to get there, right? Some of us have some dumb stuff that we've done and some hurt. But God is intervening in all those moments to push us to a place where we say we need the Lord. And this is Paul's heart. This is why we see in Romans 1, verses 16 through 17, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, meaning I have full confidence in the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the righteousness of God is revealed for faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So this righteousness, and this faith coupled together is all throughout the New Testament. Only twice in the Old Testament, but all throughout the New Testament. Why? Because it is so, so important. In other words, God's Word is making it perfectly clear that being right with God through faith and through the law do not coexist, right? They're not two sides of the same coin. They're two different coins altogether. It's not Jesus plus works. It's Jesus plus nothing else. And that's why Paul says in Galatians 3.12, he says, but the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So Paul here says, faith is about trusting in the Lord, and the law is about trusting in your works, right? And and that's the dilemma that we have. Are we going to trust in the Lord or are we going to trust in our own works? And Paul here quotes from Leviticus 18. Now Leviticus 18, he specifically quotes it in verse 5, but set the context in verse 4. God says, You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them I am the Lord. Now, why would Paul quote from Leviticus 18 to address the error of I can trust in the Lord and I can trust in my works? Why is he using Leviticus 18? Well, because the nature of the law is built on obedience in order to bring blessing, right? And we saw before that we, we will never receive the blessing of God purely based on our obedience alone. Why? Because we can't live it up. That's what Paul is addressing here. In other words, do this and live. That's what God says. In fact, if we fully lived up to God's standards, guess what? We would live, right? But the reality is, again, we're not perfect, so it's not going to happen. Faith, however, looks to what God has done in Christ for salvation, relying on God's work rather than our own work, so you are justified by faith or you are justified by works of the law and you have to choose. Are you going to stake your whole life, your eternal soul, to your work? or Christ's work. That's what Paul is addressing here. I don't know about you, but I am so thankful that my soul is anchored on the finished work of Christ and not the failed attempts of Kevin. I've done it way too long. And this is Paul's heart. He knows that many are choosing to look the other way. Yes, I put my faith in Christ, but now I'm going to secure it on my own. I'm going to work really hard. And Paul is grieved over this. In fact, when you look at Romans chapter 10, and he's talking about uh, really uh, the the Jews that are rejecting the righteousness of Christ. He he is gripped and he grieved over this. He says in Romans 10, he says in uh, verses 1 through 5, he says, brothers, so he's talking to believers here, he says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them. So he's talking about those who are seeking a righteousness, not of Christ, but of their own. he says, my heart grieves for them. That they what? That they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Sounds a lot like Paul before he met Christ. He had a great zeal for God. But he was doing the wrong things, right? The scripture says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and doing what? Seeking to establish their own They did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Here's what Paul wants people to see. He wants them to see, hey, look at my life. I've relied on myself far too long. I had great zeal for God. But my great zeal for God didn't make me any closer to God. In fact, it separated me even more from God. But until Jesus met me face-to-face on the, or face face to in Acts chapter 9, that is when my life was changed. And that is his heart for them. In other words, when Paul relied on his flesh, the strength of himself, he didn't find greater freedom. He found greater bondage. But in Acts 9, Christ set him free, and it was all of God's grace. And that's why he says in Romans 11, verse 6, But if it is by grace, it is no longer the basis of works. Otherwise, grace should no longer be grace. In other words, God's grace cannot be earned, cannot be deserved, cannot be secured. It's simply a gift from us, or from him to us, and it has to be received by faith. So why are those who rely on the law cursed? Because you can't meet the law's demands. Only Christ can. And that leads us to our second question this morning. Why are those who trust in Christ blessed? Why are those who trust in Christ blessed? In other words, what are the promises that we have in the gospel? And we've already seen some of these promises, but I think it's important to, to be reminded of some of them and then uh, understand a few other ones. And so there's three that Paul unpacks here. Uh, the first one is redemption. Redemption. Redemption has to do with paying off someone's debt. And we are the ones who are in debt, right? We have a sin debt that we cannot pay on our own. And yet Jesus Christ, the gospel promise, Jesus Christ stood in our place, right? He, he stood and, and took on our condemnation right? He stood in our place. That curse was put on him. How do we know? Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming, by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. Now, Paul here is going to quote from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 21, verse 23. Again, all of this is connecting back to the Old Testament, and here's what we need to understand about uh, this hanging, right? A lot of times we think about crucifixion, and rightly so, but we have to understand that the scripture here is not referring to crucif- crucifixion, Right? That that is a, a Roman way of death, right? This hanging on a tree actually goes way, way, way back, and the hanging on the tree wasn't uh, the method of how someone was killed, right? Uh, most often in the Old Testament, if you look at the Old Testament, most people were killed by the stoning, right? When they sinned, they were stoned, and but the but the hanging on a tree showed us something. And that's the purpose that we're talking about here. So it's not about the method of death. It's, it's what that death signified when it was hung on a tree. In fact, if you go back to Genesis 40, Joshua 8, Joshua 10, 2 Samuel 4, 2 Samuel 21, you see all these occurrences where somebody uh, was put to death because of their sin, and then they were hung on a tree. And again, that, that hanging on the tree was, was to show that God's wrath was against them. That they were condemned because of their sin. And it was a way to show the people around them that I don't want to disobey God because that's exactly where I'm going to end up. And now we fast forward uh, a little bit to the New Testament, but before we do that, we have to understand that God's punishment for sin is needed. God is a holy God. He doesn't just overlook our sin and say, okay, better better luck next time, right? He doesn't do that. In fact, the the minor prophet Nahum says this in Nahum chapter 1, verse 3. He says, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means do what? He will not clear the guilty. In other words, any and all sin needs to be punished. Just like favoritism, just like murder, all those different things. We have different categories, but God says every sin must be dealt with. And there has to be a payment or a restitution for sin. And so all throughout the Old Testament, you have the sacrificial system, right? That when people sinned, the priest would make a sacrifice, right? But now, that is coming to an end. Why? Because in Christ, Christ is the final sacrifice. Jesus took our place. Though we broke the laws, we are guilty. Christ stood in our place. First Peter 2 says it like this. He, he speaking of Jesus, committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins, there's that word, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. The sinless one, standing in the gap with us sinners, right? That's exactly what's happening here. He committed no sin, but he stood in our place. Jesus paid our curse from the law by standing in our place. Our works of the law bring about death. Jesus' fulfillment of the law brings about what? It brings about Life. That's why in Romans 6.23 it says, For the wages of sin is death. We saw that first part. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is the key. It's only in Christ. Nothing else. Only in Christ. This is important because the gospel of grace is in no way communicating that he somehow is more lenient, lenient on sin. That he has somehow lowered his standards. Listen, God will never lower his standards. He is perfectly holy. So grace is not giving us a pass. That's a misunderstanding of grace. Instead, God's grace is showing us that in Christ, he meets all the demands of the law. In Christ, we have been set free. We have been redeemed by the curse of the law. And the condemnation that we deserve has put on Jesus Christ himself. The penalty of sin has been dealt with. That's why when we hear the words of John the Baptist in John one twenty nine, our hearts as followers of Christ should scream out, Praise the Lord. Why? What does John the Baptist say? He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Are you thankful today that you are redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, not by the works of your own flesh? Listen, you are either under the curse or you are under Christ. That's your only two options. You're either under the curse or you're under Christ. That leads us to the second promise here, justification, justification. We've talked a lot about this, but it's important to keep this in context. Uh, Justification means declared not guilty. It's a one-time act in the past where we are forever declared not guilty before the Lord. So we need redemption. We need our sins to be paid for, right? He's just not going to sweep under them. Someone had to pay. Jesus paid. And because Jesus paid and we put our faith in him, now we have been justified. What does Paul say? He says in uh, Galatians 3.14, he says, So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Now what is the blessing to Abraham? We saw this again last week in Genesis 15.6. Uh, he believed the Lord and it what? It counted to him as righteousness. That is, the, that is the blessing. That we are right before God, not because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done. This is a reminder to all of us that we are not saved by trying harder. But by trusting in the finished work of Christ, we stand in His righteousness, not our own. Second Corinthians five twenty-one: For our for our sake He made Himself to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Again, Jesus didn't die for His sins; He died. Our sins, And in his death, not only did he redeem us, he also justified us. He exchanged our unrighteousness for his righteousness. This means every day I am declared right before God, every single day. Now think about the weight that comes off your your mind and your heart when you know every single day in Christ you are justified. You are right before God. And the blessing of justification is available to all people. That's what we saw in the promise that was given to Abraham back in Genesis 12.3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors I will curse, and in, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Again, Abraham was a non-Jew at this time, right? He was a Gentile, but he was justified how? By faith in the Lord. And so that reminds us today that all nations, all nations have the ability to be saved, not because of their works, but because of the work of Christ. Christ is the one that fulfills this. And that's why when we get to heaven, guess what? It's going to be a diverse people. Do you understand that? It's going to be a beautiful group of people, community of faith. The scripture says in Revelation 5, 9, and 10, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open a seal. Speaking of Jesus, Jesus is the only one able to do it. He says, For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That's why missions is so important. Not just to a select group of people, but to all people. Why? Because heaven will be filled with a diverse group of people who have put their faith in Christ. The last promise that we'll look at this morning real quickly is sanctification. Sanctification. Again, justification is a one-time event in the past, right? That has ongoing implications. Sanctification, on the other hand, is a process. It's an ongoing process. In other words, uh, sanctification is about growing in who we already are in Christ, right? So it's not adding new things. It's, it's not adding new things. It's being who we already are in Christ. And so the scripture says in Galatians 3.14, it says, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. How important is the spirit of God in our walk with the Lord? When we think about growing in Christ, listen, you cannot do it apart from the Holy Spirit of God. Just like justification is not by works and redemption is not by works, sanctification itself is not by works. In other words, you can be the most disciplined Christian on the planet and your discipline will not grow you any closer to the Lord. It's the Holy Spirit of God that draws you to the Lord. So that means in every Bible study, in every prayer meeting, every time you open up God's Word, every time you listen to whatever you listen to, your ultimate agenda is to connect with Jesus Christ. That's it. Not to learn a bunch of facts. I know a lot of people that know a lot more truth than I do. But they have become more prideful, not humble. And I'm not saying I'm not prideful. But I'm just saying, it is God who produces holiness in your life. Not your, not your disciplines. Now, I'm not saying don't be disciplined. No, don't read your Bible. But what is the goal of Bible reading? Is to connect with Jesus Christ. And again, this is what the church struggled with. Back in Galatians chapter 3, those first five verses. Remember what Paul said in verses 2 and 3. He says this, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Again, sanctification is not about you doing the work. It's about receiving the work in faith that Christ is doing in you and through you. Right? That is key. Now, it's a hard work. When we get to Galatians chapter 5, we're going to see the fruit of the Spirit and the, the works of the flesh. And it is not a pretty picture, but it's a reminder to us that we grow in holiness not based on our commitment to God, but by God's commitment to us through His Spirit. Why? Because one of the primary purposes of the Spirit in us is to glorify Christ. Continually in our hearts, minds, and our speech is to glorify Christ in everything. And faith relies on His power for us, in us and through us, not our power. Right? So it's not, what am I going to do for God today? It's, what am I going to allow God to do in me and through me today? Why? Because the power comes from Him. 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4. His divine power has granted us to all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us into his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become what? Partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. As we wrap up this morning as the worship team comes up and leads us in our time of response think about this think about redemption for just a moment. Remember it was Jesus who hung on the tree He bore the curse that you and I deserve. We were condemned and guilty, and yet Jesus Christ absorbed all of that. He absorbed the wrath of God on his own body. That story of redemption, why is that a stumbling block to the Jews? Because no way, no way is God going to receive someone that's cursed. And yet the scripture reminds us that Jesus Christ was cursed on our behalf. The finished work of Christ. Are you getting hung up on the beauty of redemption? To know that the penalty of sin has been paid for in Christ and only in Christ and there's nothing you need to do to add to it and there's nothing you can do to take away from it. I love the justification too. God makes the demands and he meets the demands. in His one and only son, Jesus Christ. And it's only in Christ do we stand justified. And the same God who redeemed you, the same God who justified you, is the very same God through his spirit that will sanctify you. All of this, all of these blessings of the gospel are received not by your works, not by you trying harder, not you doing the best you can with the the hand that you were dealt in life, but by trusting in the finished work of Christ in faith. So as we close this morning, as we have our time of response, where are you at this morning? Have you been redeemed from the penalty of your sin? Do you stand today justified, not because of yourself, but because of Christ? And as a follower of Christ, Are you finding that your growth in Christ is more on what you're trying to do versus what God desires to do in you and through you? Listen, this is so, so important. Christ has set us free from all those things. The question is, are we choosing to live free?